Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said uh, that there is always some madness in love, but there is also some reason in madness. When it comes to love, people often walk that fine line uh, between madness and reason. Love uh, can elevate it. Love can infuriate it. An illustration is in order. The classic black and white film, Quartet, based upon Somerset Maugham's short story, The Colonel's Lady, is illustrative. It features what appears to be a loveless marriage in which a husband and wife have grown increasingly estranged. The colonel ignores his wife, and the couple seems to be living in separate worlds. One day, a package arrives in the mail, and she opens it. It's a box of slender books that her publisher sent her. It contained her newly published collection of poetry. The husband did not even know that she had been working on a, on a book or that she wrote poetry. She gave one to him. He took one look at it, cast it aside, and continued reading his newspaper. And that would have been the end of the matter except for the fact that the poems were highly erotic love poems that became the talk of the town. Wherever he went, he heard people commenting on her poems. One evening at a cocktail party, he overheard a conversation in which one individual said to another, no one could write such imposing romantic poetry without having had those passionate experiences firsthand. From that moment forward, that comment began to gnaw at the husband. He resolved to find out who the paramour was. But alas, to no avail, even though he followed her around and spied on her, he could not discover about whom she had written the poems. Finally, he got up enough nerve to ask her himself. She replied that the poems were about him. Recognizing the deteriorated condition of their relationship, he protested that it was not possible that he could be the subject of these poems. She replied, the poems are not about you the way you are now. They are about you the way you once were when you loved me. This and other paradoxes that often accompany love come to mind at this season because 12 days from now, people will celebrate St. Valentine's Day. February 14th is ubiquitous. Christians and Jews alike send flowers and cards to their beloved mates and friends, and if you don't, you should, even though it's a saint holiday. We're often oblivious to the fact that St. Valentine was a priest in Rome who at the command of Emperor Claudius II was beaten and beheaded on February 14th in about the year 270. 
Uh, this does not sound particularly romantic to me. But modern folklore has embroidered Valentine as a priest who refused to go along with an unattested law attributed to Claudius II, allegedly ordering that young men remain single, believing that married men did not make good soldiers. Valentine, however, according to the uncorroborated legend, secretly performed marriage ceremonies for young men and then was arrested by Claudius. And additionally, an additional widely repeated modern embellishment with also no historical basis claims that on the evening before Valentine's execution, he wrote the first Valentine card to a young girl identified by some as his beloved, beloved, the jailer's daughter whom he had befriended and healed. That note was purportedly signed, from your Valentine. Whatever the historical accuracy, this day is universally celebrated. But leaving Valentine aside, our tradition has a lot to say about love. Let me begin with the heart, the place that ancients and moderns alike believe to be the seat of infatuation and the seat of passion. According to rabbinic literature, uh, it is uh, that uh, and even more. The heart discerns, hears, speaks, grieves, envies, breaks, strives, desires, confesses, comforts, repents, hardens. It is melted, it is torn, it deceives, it hates, it rejoices. The author of the biblical commentary, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, recognized the multiplicity of roles assigned to the heart in the 850 attestations of the Hebrew word for heart, lev and levav, in the Hebrew scriptures. While the Bible portrays the heart as the physical part of the body, equivalent to that of personality, the center of emotion, intellect, and the point of contact with God, it places special emphasis on its role as the focus of volition and moral life. Bishalach, this week's Torah portion, provides an illustration of the relationship between the heart and moral action when it refers to Pharaoh's attitude toward the fleeing Israelites. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. This is only one of ten occasions when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. However, there are ten additional instances when Pharaoh is reported to have hardened his own heart. In all of these, the hardened heart symbolizes moral failure, obstinacy in the face of human suffering, and a predisposition to cruelty. Biblical scholar Nahum Sarna expands a reader's understanding of the use of the hardened heart to portray a character's moral fiber. Sarna suggests that the hardening of the heart connotes willful suppression of the capacity for reflection, self-examination, for unbiased judgments about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart becomes synonymous with the numbing of the soul, a condition of moral atrophy. 
It should come as no surprise that to the biblical mind, when God judges an individual, he probes the heart. In contrast to Pharaoh, whose hardened heart, whose heart was hardened when he viewed the plight of the Israelites, Solomon prayed for a lave Shemaiah, grant then your servant a discerning heart to judge your people, to distinguish between good and bad. The notion that the heart is the center of moral behavior is not exclusively an Israelite concept. Egyptian tomb paintings picture the weighing of a heart after death. In these paintings, a feather, a hieroglyph for truth, is being depicted, weighed against the heart of the dead person. The heart must be empty of evil in order to balance the feather against it. Toph, the ibis-headed scribe god, is portrayed in these tomb paintings as writing down the verdict, while nearby a demon grotesque composite of a crocodile, lion, and hippopotamus called the Eater of Hearts waits expectantly for a heart to be thrown to it when the verdict is rendered against the defendant. In many instances in which Pharaoh's heart is hardened and therefore not weightless, the biblical author must have understood that the Egyptian ruler was condemned to miss the opportunity for eternal life. Thus, Pharaoh had to have understood that by that he sealed his own fate by taking responsibility for his villainous acts, which he freely acknowledged and perpetrated knowingly. This motif carries over into other sections of the Bible and serves as a, pro, as a goal for our own moral pro, uh, proclivity. Ezekiel states this concept eloquently. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit into you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. Thus, I will cause you to follow my laws and faithfully to observe my rules. The psalmist articulates the wish to behave in an upright and moral fashion with these simple words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new steadfast spirit within me. Whether in the long gone era of Egypt's majestic monarchy or in our own times, the psalmist's immutable prayer affords the listener an opportunity to reflect upon accountability. Ultimately, we must take responsibility because our tradition teaches us that all people will be called by God to account for their deeds. Thus, each time we make a moral judgment, May we do so with our hearts as well as with our minds. I conclude by returning to the paradox of love. In this illustration, a poem by Sarah Henderson Hay, the very thing that we long for can turn out to disappoint as we wish at times that we could turn the clock back that led to romance. 
And there in the beast's place stood a handsome prince, dashing and elegant from head to toes. So they were married, or so the story goes. And they lived, therefore, in great magnificence. And in the public eye, she christened ships, cut ribbons, sponsored fairs of arts and sciences. He opened parliament, made speeches, went on ships. In short, it was the happiest of alliances. But watching him glitter, listening to him talk, sometimes the princess grew perversely sad and thought of the good beast who used to walk beside her in the garden and who had such gentle eyes and such a loving arm to shield her from the briars and keep her warm. In 12 days, cards, valentines, flowers, candy, gifts, and the reminder that we ought not wait to turn the clock back to what we once might have had, to rekindle love that may have faded, to start afresh so that we can live our lives without regrets. Amen.